Amen. If you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Amos in chapter 9, the last chapter of Amos. We're going to be starting a new sermon series next week on the assumption that I finish our sermon this evening. We'll be looking at the book of Ruth together, God willing. Romans, or Amos chapter 9, sorry. With the Word of God open, we pray, let's pray and ask God's blessing. Father in heaven, we stand before this awesome picture of your judgment and of your grace. And we ask you, Father, that you would come down, rend the heavens and come down, O God, not in judgment upon this place, though we deserve it, and richly so, but in grace, because Christ deserves it, and richly so. Meet us, O God, at the point of our need, and lift up the light of your shining face upon us, for Christ's sake. Save the lost, restore the backslider, and build us all up in faith, hope, and love. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and He said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Shaul, from there shall my hand take them. They climb up to heaven. From there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, one of the pagan mountains, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds its vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, and the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the ground. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repaired its breaches, and raise up its ruins and rebuild it in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord. Who does this? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord 
when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given, says the Lord your God. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, you, don't, you don't think much about tornadoes living in the UK because they really rarely have ever happened there. I think there's been one or two F1 tornadoes in the UK, but that's about the height of it. But coming to America um, and experiencing the thunderstorms in America, which are rather more powerful, especially in the south than back in the more temperate UK, one began to realize something a little bit more of the power of God. I remember whenever we were in Mississippi, and Hannah was, you know what, um, only a couple of years old when we first got there. Um, we would do the, who made you God? Who made the sea God? Who made the heavens God? And then one day, there was this huge thunderstorm rolled in early in our time in Jackson, and there was this massive clap of thunder broke overhead, and the whole house shook. And I said to Hannah, who made the thunder, Hannah? And she goes, I don't know. <laughs> and I said, God. And she went, wow. It was like totally blew her mind that God would make something awesome, a thunder. Well, likewise, the whole tornado thing can be a bit scary. You know, you go from the F1, fairly significant breeze in comparison to the F5, but you go through the Fujitsu scale and you get through to the F5 and you have what the meteorologists call the finger of God. The, um, there's, technically, it's possible for an F6, but it's never happened in the world. Uh, once almost got to an F6 in Kansas, and I remember hearing a recording of the alert that went out over the weather radio. You know, normally, it says there's a tornado coming your way. Basically, you know, take shelter in the lower part of your basement or you know, whatever, in an inner room. And this, this tornado was a mile wide, F5, verging on F6. And the announcer said, if you're in the path of this tornado, Flee for your lives, or you'll not survive. A mile wide of just complete devastation. Uh, sucking the concrete off the ground as it moved across the road. Well, in chapter 9, we meet a similar um, description of the coming judgment of God. But there's nowhere to flee. It's quite simply inescapable. If you look at chapter 9, it falls into two um, unequal sections, unequal in length and also unequal in significance. The first larger portion of the chapter deals with the threat of an unescapable, inescapable massacre. And then at the end of the chapter, we find the surprising story of inescapable mercy. Inescapable massacre, inescapable mercy, and as time permits, we'll work our way through both parts of the passage. First of all, inescapable massacre. Uh, you see that there from verse 4 really all the way down to verse 10. Inescapable massacre. And it's both visual and verbal in import. It begins with a visual vision. I saw the Lord standing by 
the altar. Now, the altar in question, of course, is the altar at Bethel, that perverted altar made by Jeroboam I shortly after 931 B.C. I think we said 926 this morning. 931 was whenever Rehoboam split the nation through his incompetence, and Jeroboam took the northern kingdom. And you remember at that time, he was faced with a problem. He had most of the people, the northern ten tribes, and most of the land, but he didn't have the temple. And he's kind of nervous. God promised him, trust me, follow me, I'll raise up for you a lasting name, and so forth and so on. But Jeroboam didn't believe God, and he was worried that his people making that constant trek through the year to the feasts in Jerusalem would um, begin to realize the allure of the Davidic kingdom and all of the promises God made to David. And so, to contradict that, he made his own um, kingly altar in Bethel and also in Dan, these two Bethels, and there he put a new god, these two bulls, and uh, though he gave them the same name, this is Jehovah, but he was the priest, he was the king, and he was controlling the ceremonies. And you remember, God sent a prophet and um, cursed the altar, and as and Jeroboam pointed his finger and told his men to seize the prophet, God caused his arm to wither, at which point Jeroboam said, belay that order, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Well, that was 931, so we're fast-forwarding you know, 200 years now to the time of Amos. Northern Israel is completely apostatized from God, and uh, they're facing the judgment. And in the past, God showed, Abra- showed Amos, you know, this is what the Lord showed me, and it's very visual, these pictures of judgment in the past in Amos. But now we see God Himself coming, and Amos sees, I saw the Lord, which is reminiscent of Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. Um, and one commentator said, to see the Lord um, is, a, is, is, a, um, is a term that denotes a devastating encounter with God for Isaiah and for these pagan worshipers. And it's happening in Bethel, where men pretended to worship the false gods. They end up meeting the true God, only to discover that there is no escape in false religion. And it's devastating, right? God unleashes this earthquake, and from the top to the bottom, this pagan shrine is shaken, and it collapses on these people. Uh, It falls down on the heads of everyone inside, even those maybe on the steps waiting to get in. There's no escape for them either. Uh, Those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. God is the one doing this. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. And then in verse 2 and following, there's kind of a it's reminiscent of Psalm 139, although Psalm 139 speaks of the inescapability of God in mercy and compassion and kindness. You know, O Lord, you have searched me, you know me, you know when I rise up and when I sit down. If I take the wings of the dawn and fly to the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand will lay hold of me. If I go down to Sheol, you are there, and so forth. Where can I escape from your spirit? But it's a kindly, friendly, warm, cuddling embrace. This is not quite... Um, this, the picture that, that Amos is conjuring up for us. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. 
if they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, which was an, a, a tall mountain in the north of Israel, um, where the pagans believed Baal was especially present, kind of nearer to him geographically. And um, even there, where your God's power is strongest, um, Amos is saying, there'll be no escape from the true God. From there, I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, so going down to the Marianas Trench, 31,560 feet, I think, in and around that, seven miles down, as far down as the planes fly up in the heavens, even there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And even if they go into captivity before their enemies, which they did when the Assyrians took them off, even there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The vision is both visual and it's verbal. The second part I just read, God is saying, He said, strike the capitals, and so forth. So, you have the vision at the start, and the verbs are the words, but the weight, as always, is in the Word. Just what we hear is most tremendous, not just what we see. And notice um, Amos doesn't describe God. He doesn't say, I saw the Lord, and this really, <laughs> this really looked like painters grab your pen and your, your brush. God is simply indescribable. He sees the sovereign Lord, and it, He's just overwhelmed. And then the Word comes. Wherever you may go, whatever you may do, judgment will take you. And whatever you might think, look down at the end um, in verse 10, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. These are presumptuous sinners who are quite confident God is not about to judge them. After all, they're the people of God. They're Abraham's children. They're trusting in the covenant without familiarity and faith in the God of the covenant. So, why can't you escape judgment, you might say to me? And Amos says, well, it's quite simple. You can't escape judgment because you can't escape God. And he has the third of three doxologies uh, in the book of Amos, verse 5 and 6. The Lord God of hosts, He who touches the earth, and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds His upper chambers in the heavens, and founds His vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Yahweh, the Lord, is His name. It's an awesome picture of God's destructive power, and it's reminiscent, of course, of the, the judgment upon Egypt and also the judgment upon the world in the days of Noah when God called for the waters to overflow and flood and crush and swamp the world. You can't escape judgment because there is no escape from God. You can't escape God. And here, Amos is saying, God has the power to do what He threatens. He's not like that witch, remember I told you about a few weeks ago, who I met in pediatric ER at the Raw Belfast Hospital for Sick Children, this kind of granny with her stick, and she was the queen of the gypsies, and one of the SHO's senior house officers who was in the room with her kind of 
she, she didn't like the diagnosis um, he had made about her grandson, who was a little baby, and she chased him out of the cubicle with her stick, cursing him. I curse you by the moon, and I curse you by the stars, and I curse you by the ground. And it, was, it, was very, it was very impressive, actually, this little small woman. But she was only a woman, right? Her words were just words, right? And you could write them off, though it scared the liver out of this doctor. Um, she was like the wicked witch of the East in um, Dorothy's land, without the green skin. But you get the picture. And didn't have a pointy hat either, but it was, everything else was there. It was pretty terrifying. But mildly amusing in hindsight, not at the time. But she's only a woman, right? This is the words of God. He has the power to do what he threatens. And in these verses, uh, Amos shows you omnipotence in action. It's one thing to say, well, how strong is God? Oh, God is omnipotent. He can do all his holy will. That's all very nice and kind of cold and sterile. But here we see him come and touching the earth, and the earth melts and overthrowing the oceans in a huge tsunami of judgment and um, causing the waters of the Nile to boil and building his chambers in the upper reaches of the cosmos. It's an awesome picture of omnipotence in action. It's one thing to say God is omnipotent, but, but Amos is turning the, eye, the ear into an eye, and he's showing you omnipotence in action. Bob File says, the key note of Amos's final doxology is that God's judgment is wholly consistent with his character. Yahweh the warrior has power to carry out what he says he will do, the great doctrines of creation and providence which lie at the heart of the Old Testament are very far from being mere abstract theories. Positively, they mean that God can build, that the people of God can build their lives securely on the rock, knowing that the one who made them is the one who will guide them throughout their lives and complete the good work he has begun. But negatively, as here, the doctrines of creation and providence mean that the Creator and Lord of history will punish those who flout His laws and despise His Word. It reminds me of a scene at the end of, I think it's Citizen Soldiers, I forget, or it might be D-Day, but Stephen Ambrose's books on the World War II, and he's talking about uh, the very end of the war when uh, the Allied masses are just pouring into Germany over the Siegfried Line, and there's tank after tank, and armored column after armored column, as far as the eyes could see, American armor and American might is pouring into Germany. And there's a German lance corporal, or someone, I forget his name, he's standing there watching this, and he's, uh, he's gaping, and he says, who would make war on such a nation? the madness of Hitler to make war on America. And Amos is saying the same thing, except even more. Who would make war on such a God? And maybe you're here this evening, and you know, nobody else might know, but you know your life is one giant fist in the face of God, a says who. You like another story from Ambrose's work with this. It was actually New Year's Eve 
Um, and this Messerschmitt 109 was flying between, in no, over no man's land in between Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge and the German army that had um, the American paratroopers, Easy Company, surrounded, as it were. And the, 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 the Messerschmitt was on fire, actually, and the flames were bursting out of the engine and coming back over the canopy. And the American soldiers watched in admiration as the German pilot did a barrel roll and turned his plane upside down to get the flames away from the cockpit, opened his cockpit and fell out. And as he falls out, they, they applaud his acrobatic ability and the plane under fire, right? And as he's coming down, they're applauding. And then they watch with horror as he pulls out his Luger 9mm and start, starts firing at the Allied lines. And one of the American soldiers, I forget who it was, said, he, fire, he fired first, we fired last. And by the time he reached the ground, there wasn't enough left of him to bury. This feeble little man firing a pistol at a line of American soldiers with rifles and 50 caliber machine guns and so forth, he was obliterated. That's the picture here. And maybe that's you. You're falling out of the heaven. You're falling into the hands of God. Will you defy him? And this passage is here to, to wake you up don't you see the madness of fighting against this God and defying Him and rebelling against Him? You can't escape from Him. There is no refuge from Him. You'll only find escape in Him. So, you can't escape judgment because you can't escape God. Well, what about, you might say, but we're the people of God. And that Mamus says, no, you can't escape judgment because you can't escape God, because the way you are living, you have no right to claim favored status. Down verse 7, are you, Israel, not like the Cushites to me? That's a, a, a nation in North Africa, maybe modern Ethiopia. Um, and they were used geographically, different pagan nations at different symbolic value, Tyre and Sidon. They were the wealthy trade center, the Wall Street and the Main Street of the ancient Near East, and they worship money, right? And so they're often a sign of material excess and material pride. Look how, much, look, look how far our credit card will go, right? And then you've got um, Egypt and Babylon. They're often big state government oppressing the people of God, right? And then you've got the, the, the Cushites, and, and they're basically geographically as far away from God as you can be in the Old Testament. They're, they're separate from God, geographically. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Now, you might think that what some, some liberal commentators will say here that God is essentially divorcing Israel. He's saying, you're no longer my special people. I don't think that's what's happening here. What God is saying to them is, listen, in what sense are you like the Cushites? Well, I'll tell you. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? You had your migration story. And I also brought the Philistines up from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir, right? He's saying every nation has its migration story. But your migration story only has meaning as you walk in fellowship with the God who brought you out of Egypt to worship Him and obey Him, right? 
And if you take that out of the story, your migration story is no different from anybody else's. If you take out, if you take out the meaning of the Exodus, you just become yet another nation. I move from one place to another. Right? It's a little bit like, I think it's Mateer talks about, you know, the pop song, and man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Right? And um, the carol, or the, the pop song, I think Boney M sang it back in the UK. But anyway, you know, man shall live forevermore because of Christmas Day. Right? And, we, and our culture sings that, right? And we celebrate Christmas. But Christmas is just a date in the calendar. If you haven't got Christ in your heart, Christmas is worse than nothing for you because the meaning of it has been sucked out of your life. Matthias says, the Lord does not look on people in light of their historical past but in light of their moral present. It's all very well, you might say, having your Christmas carols and your Easter songs, but what difference is it making in your life? The Muslims have their special dates, and the Hindus have their special dates, and the Jews have their special dates, and the Christians have their special dates, but if there's no spiritual redemption, no new birth, no repentance, no faith, your special dates are no more meaningful than any pagan nation's special dates. That's the point Amos is making. He's not cutting Israel off. You make that clear later in the passage. He's just saying your spiritual history um, won't make up for the lack of a spiritual life in the present. Yesterday's grace is a day late, you might say. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the ground, from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. More about that in a second. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And so what God is saying here, He's coming to sift His people. A sieve is an instrument of discrimination, right? And there's two ways you can take the verse in Hebrew. You can say, as it's written in the ESV, um, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, and, sorry, but no pebble shall fall to the, the earth, Right? In that sense, God is shaking the, the dirt out of the sieve and gathering the pebbles. So, with the sieve, the holes aren't big enough for the pebbles to fall through, and only the dirt falls through, and He, he sifts it, right? And all the dirt, all the sand falls through, and you're left with pebbles, maybe for your yard, right? But they're precious, right? That's one picture. The other picture is that God is sifting the unfruitful stones from, from the soil, and using the sieve to keep the pebbles and allow all the soil to fall through. It doesn't really matter. The Hebrew can go both ways, and commentators spend a lot of ink talking about it. But the point is, God is sifting His people. And the question is, what's He sifting from the people? He's sifting those who are entirely presumptuous, 
All sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Notice he's not saying I'm going to kill all the sinners in my people. Then we're all done for. No, he's saying I'm going to kill all the sinners who say disaster will not befall us. These are people who trust in the outward trappings of religion. They have the right name for God. They have the right fundamental idea. You bring sacrifices to God to kind of worship Him and so forth and so on. They have the right geography. They go to Bethel. After all, Jacob went to Bethel, right? So there's so much orthodoxy about what they do. They're like Christians coming to church and have all the right names. They sing all the right hymns, sing all the right psalms. They even have the right confession of faith, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, even the Westminster Confession of Faith. But trusting in all that, absent a true and vibrant and living faith in the God of the covenant, doesn't amount to a hill of beans. And one of the signs of such a person is they live with a carnal security. God's not going to judge me. I'm part. Of, I'm a Presbyterian for crying out loud, right? And there's there's no sense that they are worthy of the judgment of God. They're entirely presumptuous in the present. They're entirely presumptuous in the future. They feel safe and at ease, not because they're trusting Christ, but because they think their sins don't really matter that much. And so many preachers preach to the people that way. You've heard the story before. I've mentioned it before, but of Lloyd-Jones preaching in America, and he's preaching in these big churches, and, um, and there was one time he got out of the pulpit, went down to the back door, as we do after the sermon, and, the, and this woman goes out. She's very finely dressed, and um, the minister said, she's a big giver. In other words, be nice to her, right? And she walks up to Lloyd-Jones and says, you're the first minister who ever spoke to me as if I was a sinner. And the minister's going, gulp. <laughs> there goes that tithe. And then she says, I'll be back tonight. Because for the first time in her life, she felt conviction of sin. And she knew what Lloyd-Jones was saying was true, not just in general about other people, but of her in particular. And that conviction was a sign that she was alive in her soul. And one of the most healthy spiritual signs is that you you really begin to believe, I deserve to go to hell for my sins. And that fear that nags us all and should nag us much more than it does is the very fear God designs to lead us to Christ. And when that fear is absent, no spiritual life is present. If you're here this evening and your sin never bothers you, you think, ah, sure, nobody's perfect. You're never concerned about your sin, never convicted about your sin. Um, I can't imagine you are alive in your soul. And God says in Amos, it's those very people who are secure in self-righteousness that I will sift and drive from my people. As Matir says, these people are complacent careless sinners living in a world of pretense and make-believe. Sin is a serious reality. It cost God the lifeblood of His own Son. If it's not serious in your mind, if it doesn't weigh heavily upon your soul, you're living in a fantasy world of make-believe. The only way that God can save you to heaven is by sending His precious Jesus to hell.
So inescapable uh, judgment. And then, secondly, inescapable mercy. Not all of the house of Jacob will be utterly destroyed, verse 8. This great sifting will come. And Isaiah lifts his eyes up and looks to the future. In that day, speaking of a future day, a final day of judgment and revelation, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. He's pointing forward to a new Davidic priest. The booth of David is like, is another way of saying the tabernacle of, of David, but it's a booth. It's, it's a lean-to piece of canvas with two sticks holding it up. It's flimsy. The booth of David is all but fallen down. All that's left of the temple is a little booth, two sticks, and a lean-to roof, you might say. It's very unimpressive, but it's connected to David. Now, remember, Amos is preaching to the northern ten tribes who have forsaken Rehoboam and the Davidic line, and he is reminding them there is no salvation except through David. If you want to be saved, you've got to go south and get the right king. That's pretty dangerous. That'd be like a prophet from Ukraine going to Moscow and saying, you've got to go to Ukraine. Putin won't do you any good. You wouldn't live very long if he sang that in Moscow, I don't think. In that day, I will raise up the birth. It's reminiscent, though, of the tabernacle, the tent that God led people through the wilderness. But this tabernacle belongs to David the king. So there's a marriage here of both the priestly work of of, um, Moses and Aaron and the kingly work of David. There's already a sense here that the coming Messiah is going to merge priestly and kingly, and of course, prophetic um, anointed rules, which had never happened before safely. But this booth has fallen down. God is going to repair it and rebuild it. Why? Verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Notice again, this is God's work. He's the one who does it, and He does it because He said it. So it's a verbal pronouncement here of God. God's words are certain. And this term, possessing the remnant of Edom, that's interesting. Edom, of course, is Esau, Jacob's brother, who were fighting. And Edom are a picture of, of often used nationally, like an Obadiah, as a, as a nation at war with God. And beyond them, they're a little picture of the whole world at war with God. And because they're at war with God, they were also at war with Jacob. So, you've got Jacob mentioned earlier in verse 8, and Edom here mentioned in verse 12. The two old brothers are still fighting, as it were. But Jacob's line will possess Edom. That's a, a verb of conquest. But Edom isn't destroyed, it's incorporated, it's assimilated, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. In other words, Edom takes its place as one of the other pagan nations who are now called by the name of Yahweh. This is the kingdom of God spreading through every nation, tribe, and tongue and conquering them. One of the reasons, I think, why we build our pulpits in the shape of chariots, because Christ rides triumphant over pagan nations, riding through 
the preaching of the gospel. Now, the upshot of all this is not just the end of the old hatred dividing man from man and man from God, but it also brings the end of the curse. And there'll be prosperity. Behold, the days are coming, declared the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. The harvest will come so thick and so fast that the guy sowing the seed for next year's harvest will be, for this year, for next year's harvest will be overtaken by the man coming to reap it, is the idea. It's unbelievable prosperity, also unbelievable fertility. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. That's a reversal. Remember, God said in the prophets, you will plant vineyards, but you will not eat them. And you will, um, you will make gardens, but shall not harvest their fruit. But here is a direct reversal of that curse. You will plant and you will eat. You'll have the joy of fulfillment. It's a wonderful thing to begin a yard project and see it through to completion. See the wilderness conquered. Praise God. But in eternity, what will it not be when every plant you plant blooms? I planted seven ornamental grasses, and six of them are doing really well, and one of them is doing his best to die at the moment, despite my efforts to water it. That will not happen in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything we put our hands to will prosper. Like nowadays, the definition of a weed is a plant that's easy to grow and hard to kill, and the definition of a plant is a plant that's hard to grow and easy to kill. But in heaven, it'll be the reverse. Everything we plant will grow, and there'll be no weeds or thorns or thistles to infect the ground. The curse is gone. Prosperity, fertility, and security. Verse 615, I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord, your God. Alec Mateer says, sin brings disappointment and frustration. But as Amos looks forward, he sees the day when the power of sin will be destroyed. It will no longer blight, disappoint, and frustrate the people. In 5 verse 11, it is, it is 5 verse 11 in reverse, houses shall be built and inhabited, vineyards planted and enjoyed. That was the verse I referred to earlier about the opposite happening. They are set free from the penalty of sin. They cannot ever be robbed of their inheritance. The land is theirs forever. On man's side, the rebellion is over. On God's side, there has been a great reconciliation, and the whole creation is liberated, and its energies pent up for the centuries during which sin abounded and death reigned. Its energies now explode in one triumphant burgeoning as nature hastens to lay its tribute at the feet of him whose right it is to reign. And the curse is gone. Eden is restored. So, you have this wonderful picture at the end of the book of Amos, inescapable massacre 
for those finding refuge in false gods. But among twisted, broken Jacob, those who know they deserve judgment and find themselves in in their heart an instinct to look to David, to look to Jesus. There's a way of peace with God, a way way of peace with estranged brothers, uh, and a way of prosperity as the curse comes to an end, and we enjoy security now and forever. And so, Amos is all of the prophets do. He's telling us, look away from yourselves. Look away from your own religious works, no matter how orthodox they are, and look to Jesus. At times, he can seem very unimpressive, like a booth in a vineyard, um, a stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. But there's life in him, and there's only life in him, and there's light in him that eternity shall not extinguish. Look to Jesus. Come to him. We deserve inescapable judgment, massacre. But if we look to Jesus, we'll find inescapable mercy. It's like this morning's text. It seems too good to be true. You can't mess this up. But if you're looking to Jesus, you can't. If grace is lifting you and pulling you up to Jesus, and you're looking to him and away from yourselves, you are safe. Your sin cannot erode it. Your failure cannot frustrate it. And your filthiness cannot defile it. You're safe in Jesus, safe now and safe forever. God could no more damn you than re-damn Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Without him, we would be like condemned men on death row waiting for the sentence of hell. And we thank you, O God, that although contrary to the hope of so many Americans, we cannot be justified by death. Simply die and go to heaven, most people think, unless you're really, really bad. But that's exactly what we are. We are really, really bad. But we are justified, O God, by faith, because our Savior is really, really, really good. And so as great sinners this evening, O God, we run and thrust ourselves into the arms of an all-sufficient Savior. Where else can we go? He alone has the words of everlasting life. In his name we pray. Amen.